Welcome back to another episode of the Virtual Coffee Break with the MSU Extension Dairy Team. If you learned and enjoy our previous episode on beef cross calves, you are in the right place as today we will expand on that information when Dr. Barry Bradford interviews Dr. Donna Berry. If you missed that episode, please know that that and all previous episodes of the podcast are still available, so feel free to go back and give a listen to those episodes you have missed. Back to our topic of beef crosses, there is great information ahead, so let's get started. I'm fortunate today to have uh, Dr. Donna Berry here with us. Um, you're fun to talk with on any topic, but especially on this topic that I have some shared interest, uh, we'll dig into in a minute. Could you start off though, just by filling us in on your background? How did you get into to dairy cattle research and what's your job that you have today? So I'm actually a beef farmer and a sheep farmer. That's that's my that's my main job, but okay. I'm uh, only joking. That's, I'm, a, I'm a part-time beef and sheep farmer. I'm actually just coming to the end of my lambing season now and I'm just starting my calving season. I, I'll have one calf tonight, I'd say. But um, I am a geneticist in, in Chagas. Um, even though a lot of my previous work would have been in dairy, I also work a lot in beef and in sheep and, and in actually greyhounds and horses and grass as well. And that's the grass you grow, not the grass you smoke. We'd have a <laughs> lot of grass in, in Ireland. Um, so I, I would have done a, a bachelor's in agricultural science in Dublin. And then I did my PhD in Wageningen University in the Netherlands on a dairy cow fertility genetics. Excellent. And so you dabble in all these species. I think it's fascinating that you can take the skill set you have and apply it to all these these different systems. I'm curious today, I, I want to talk with you about one major structural shift that's happening in dairy systems around the world, and that's the increasing prevalence of beef on dairy matings and how that's somewhat changing the system we have in many countries. Can you talk about what that trend looks like in Ireland? Around two or three years ago was the first time that beef from the dairy herd actually contributed more to the beef produced nationally. So by that I mean both the prime cattle from the dairy herd, but also the the cull cows. And at the moment, around 50% of the meetings to dairy cows in Ireland, or dairy females I should say, it also includes heifers, are are to beef bulls. Now that's increasing by around 2 percentage units each year. And I don't see that slowing. If anything, I probably see that increasing for the foreseeable future for a number of reasons. Our dairy cow populations, our breeding goals, are aggressively selecting for improved reproductive performance. So what that is doing is it's the, the requirement to create more replacements isn't as strong, dairy replacements. So therefore, farmers are using that opportunity to use beef bulls on their dairy females to increase the value of those animals. Also, what I do see more being used in the future is sex semen. Um, in Ireland, even with our heavy reliance on fertility and the, the compromised conception rate with sex semen, we, we are seeing an increase in its usage. Of course, that also leads to a reduced requirement for the dairy females for mating to so dairy on dairy matings. So a greater opportunity again for using beef on dairy. Um, and we're, we're kind of seeing these trends internationally. Like you see it in the US, it's actually difficult to get actual data on the US, but the amount of beef matings is increasing in the US. Now we can't attribute that completely to, to beef on dairy versus right. beef on beef, but the vast majority of that increase would be beef on dairy. You're right, it's hard to find uh, hard data here. 
Can you tell me a little bit? I know I'm going to refer to a couple of papers that you published last year. As you said, COVID was good for your publication productivity, at least all the other problems aside. Tell me, first of all, what you found when you dug into a big data set on Irish breedings in terms of what cows are being selected for beef matings in the Irish dairy herd. Yeah, look, you're right. We, we have this massive database in Ireland where all the beef and dairy cattle are stored in. So lots of data, calving difficulty, carcass metrics, insemination data, all herds in Ireland are inside in this database. Uh, the dam, it's a legal requirement that the dam has to be recorded. And in the vast majority of cases, the sire and the sire breed are also record, recorded. It's actually a legal requirement to record the sire breed as well. So it was a massive opportunity to dig into this beef on dairy. So what, what are cows, what kind of cows are getting beef semen and what type of beef semen? What's the ramifications of that, of using the beef semen on the cows? Those are the three questions we posed. So if we start on the first one was, because um, we, we've built sire advice systems as well. So we wanted to pre-populate a lot of these sire advice systems with, okay, this cow has tending towards getting a beef semen, so therefore we'll, we'll put beef semen on this cow. So old cows uh, had a greater chance of getting beef semen. So for example, a fifth parity cow had a 35% greater chance of getting beef semen compared to a, a first parity cow. Cows that had previously experienced calving difficulty were more likely to get beef semen. Cows that are poor genetic merit, you'd expect. Dairy, dairy cows obviously poor genetic merit. They were more likely to get beef semen. Cows with high cell count in the previous lactation, also, you'd expect, this, none of this is, is completely uh, earth-shattering stuff. Sure. They're also likely to get uh, beef semen. The other one was towards the end of the breeding season. So you have to appreciate the Irish system is that we're, we're seasonal calving. So the vast majority of our cows would be calving, depending on where you are in the country, um, from around the middle of January until around the, the, the middle of April. Probably 90% of, of dairy cows would be calved now at the, on the, just after Patrick's Day. And the reason is because we, we like to go on the beer for Christmas Day, so we dry off all <laughs> our cows around Christmas. So the later the cows calve, uh, the shorter their lactations. But because the grass is growing now at the moment, um, you can maximize the utilization of grass in the cow's diet. So what you want to do is you, you, our breeding seasons tend to be around 13 weeks. So you, the first six weeks is we use dairy semen. And then for the latter half of the breeding season, we tend to use beef semen. And that's really what the data showed us as well. That makes a lot of sense. It's great that you have such a strong and, and I probably what really sets your database apart is that it's a pretty full scale view of what's going on as opposed to uh, sampling that's convenient, right? So I'm sure the producers there don't always love the required <laughs> reporting, but for, for you at least, it, it makes for a really nice data set to dig into. So talk me through, what, the reason I wanted to talk with you on this podcast is really around the, the paper you published last year on the beef merit of the sire mated to a dairy female affects her subsequent performance. And Tell me a little bit, if you would, how you came to be interested in this question. I'm, I'm, I see a, a lot more of beef matings on, on dairy females going into the future. And most scientific studies would have a hypothesis, but I actually couldn't come up with a hypothesis of this because I didn't really know what direction things are going to go. Sure. So you could look at it one way and you can say, well, if the cow is growing this big fetus, this big chunky beef fetus, you think it's going to take a lot out of her? So her milk yield after she calves could be reduced. Now, the other way you could look at it is that, well, this whole maternal investment theory, whereby if you have a big calf, 
then the cow is kind of pre-programmed saying, oh, I've got, a, I've got a big calf here. I better produce a load of milk so I can feed this big growing calf. Either way, it's like a good scientist, no matter what result you get, you can kind of have a, a kind of an explanation for it. And if we look at some of the data here to four, um, people would have looked at gender, for example, the influence of calf gender on milk yield. And it is inconsistent, but most of the studies would say that cows that had a, a heifer calf tend to produce more milk. Now, the differences, with the exception of one study, the differences are really minuscule. Um, our study actually showed the opposite, is that cows that had male calves tended to produce slightly, slightly more. So uh, that was that was the kind of hypothesis in inverted commas. I, I can never be wrong because it could go either direction. But also how I see the future is that rather than using artificial insemination with beef semen, so you have a 50% beef, 50% dairy, there, there's a potential, it, it could become a reality where you could actually implant pure, so 100% beef embryos into dairy cows. Again, with the pursuit of trying to increase the value of, of these subsequent calves. So that kind of gave me a little bit of the heebie-jeebies, putting a purebred Angus or a purebred Charlie into a dairy cow. Yep. You know, it, it could have really have ramifications. Now we know it'll probably cause calving difficulty. We know that. So in the in the study, what I did was I actually only retained the cows that had no recorded calving difficulty. So we, we weren't getting this this kind of a bias. Right. Okay. So we're basically going to discuss data in the scenario where you've been wise enough in your beef mating choice that you're not inducing greater calving difficulties. Correct. Like we, we know, uh, I've already done the work that um, if a cows that experience a difficult calving produce 150 kilos less milk. So in Ireland, that would be around two, two to three percent less milk cows that experience calving difficulty. So we, we threw all that out because we didn't want it to be confounded. And we only retained, we actually we had around 350,000 uh, lactation records, all from Hostel Friesian cows, where they were mated to dairy bulls or, or to beef bulls, and they were free of recorded cabin difficulty anyway. Okay, fantastic. So that you, you've kind of started to answer my next questions about how did you go about this? So you've got a huge data set, 350,000 calvings. Um, you said today, the Irish dairy herds breeding about 50% beef uh, it wasn't quite that high in this data set. Is that correct? Do you remember? Yeah, it could have been. Uh, I would have edited, but also I wanted desire to be known. Um, and you put yourself in the, in, the, in the shoes of a dairy farmer in Ireland. Like you, mm. you have six weeks of calf, uh, of 13 weeks of calving in total, but you're after six weeks of black and white cow, dairy calving and you're, you're, you're wrecked. So a lot of the dairy farmers actually don't even record the size of their beef calves. But also... A, lot, a fair proportion of the beef on dairy matings in Ireland would actually be stock bulls. Our herds are getting larger, so they would have multiple stock bulls. So they don't know the actual sire of the calf. So I would have excluded a lot of that, and that sure. would have probably brought it down to 40%. Okay, it's, I just found it. it's, it's basically two-thirds dairy on dairy and about one-third crossbred to, to beef. Yeah, it yeah, okay. makes a bit of sense, yeah. Very cool. So yeah, and that's that's what also sets this study apart. You not only were able to look at, at breed effects, but also we'll talk about at the end here, the actual specific sire effects within breed, which I think is fascinating. Mm -hmm. So talk me through your main findings, I guess, from this study. You compared the productivity of cows after giving birth to a calf from a dairy sire or a beef sire. What did you find? 
Correct. And the variables we were really interested in was milk yield and concentration, so fat and protein, but also reproductive performance, because that's crucially important for Ireland. Yep. And yeah, look, we would have looked at the breed of the sire, but also we have genetic evaluations in Ireland for the carcass weight of the progeny of the sire and the conformation, so the muscularity of, of that animal. So I was trying to disentangle breed effects, um, so an Angus versus a Holstein or a Charlie versus a Holstein, but also a muscular Angus versus a less muscular Angus or a heavy big Angus versus a, a small Angus. So trying to understand what was really driving any effect we could see. Now, what we did see, we saw lots of things, really cool stuff. So um, in genetic evaluations, we always adjust for the sire of the cow when we're talking about milk production, right? And, and milk production around 35% of the differences in milk production are genetic. But what, what I did here was I included the sire of the calf, um, which I don't think anybody has done. So what I'm really looking for here was there differences among sires on how their, their progeny influenced their, the, the mate of that sire. And we, we saw there wasn't much, it was 1%, 1% of an impact. So it was statistically significant, but uh, biologically not, not that important. Um, just to put into context, we, we take the Holstein Friesian bull uh, of, of the, the sire of the calf as, as our base. And we compared all the other breeds of, of beef bulls. On average, I look at vary between sires. On average, dairy cows that gave birth to a beef calf produced 50 kilos less milk. Now that's the equivalent of around one one and a half percent loss in yield. I'm not sure what the, I haven't looked at the yields in the US at the moment, but uh, probably in peak lactation for sure, that's that's only one day in milk, a US Holstein cow. Yeah, now, yep. Our cows there were yielding around maybe six and a half thousand litres. So 50 kilos out of six and a half thousand litres. Now, I don't know, this is the real nice thing about it, which I think it needs to be replicated in the likes of the US. If you had a 10,000 litre cow, would it still be 50 kilos? Would it be 100 kilos, which is double? Or actually, could it, could it have a larger effect on those higher yielding cows? Really stress those higher yielding cows that are already under a lot of metabolic stress during that transition period. So that's, that's one of the things we saw. Um, it also... Um, heavier or, or beef bulls resulted in cows that had higher somatic cell count. So we would have adjusted already for the cell count of the, the cows themselves prior. Then when we dig into it a little bit more and look at was, well, was a carcass weight was driving this? When we adjust for differences in carcass weight, genetic merit of carcass weight of the sire, we still saw a breed effect. So it was, it was more than just the size of, of the bull. But interestingly, when we adjusted for the confirmation, so the muscularity of that bull, that actually removed all the breed effects. So this difference is 50 kilos, I was saying, I think it was something like 45 kilos for Angus and maybe 100 kilos for Charlie. So the Charlies were taking more, more out of the dairy cow. A lot of that was actually due to um, sort of confirmation. Also, there was no impact on, on reproduction. And then finally, when we looked within the Holstein, so I, I wanted to see, okay, look, carcass weight is having an influence, confirmation is having an influence. When I looked within the Holsteins, there really wasn't any influence of, of this genetic. So it's really a beef breed thing compared to the Holstein thing. Very good, interesting. Just real rough math, 50 kilos, 110 pounds. In our system, that's a little under $20 of lost revenue. You know, in your system, I guess, let, let's assume the revenue would be roughly the same. Does that really change the calculus in terms of the, the value of breeding to a beef sire? 
So it's around 10 euros in our system. And, and you, you said it rightly, Barry, that it's, it's a 10 or $20, whatever you said, uh, reduction in revenue. But that doesn't necessarily mean a $20 reduction in profit, because if the animal is going to yield less, then it's probably going to eat less as well. So uh-huh. it's not a one-to-one relationship. If we look at the price of, of, of calves last week now, it was 65 euros for a, a Holstein bull. And it was 120 euros for uh, Angus uh, Holstein and bull. So look, that's what's that difference. That's around 70, 75 euros difference in, in the, the value of the calf minus the 10 euros lost in milk. So look, I, I don't think it changes maths in any way. Now, I think, I think there is probably opportunities to improve things or to, definitely to dig into things further. It's the first study I've seen like this. So I think it needs to be replicated. Um, in a different population. Yep, all fair. And I think I think the economics would be basically the same here. To me, and thank you for doing this work, by the way, you mentioned some of the studies on calf gender effects and on milk yield or associations with, and that was some work that I dabbled in a few years ago. And as you said, it's been kind of hit and miss whether that has replicated, but it did make me kind of nervous about this whole trend towards crossbreeding because I was worried that maybe there was a lingering carryover effect. Um, So this makes me feel a little better, although, yes, it would be nice to see something done here. So one question, though, I think, you know, something really interesting in your data is, again, as you said, the genetic differences within the breeds that we may breed to. You may not know a lot about the beef evaluations in the U.S. and the types of data that we have available for us. But if put yourself in the shoes of a herd manager today and taking this data that you've published now, how would you go about actually picking the sires that you're going to breed to? So we, we have developed um, what we call a dairy beef index. Um, we, we launched our, we published it, I think, in 2019, and we launched it two years ago. And what this dairy beef index does is it identifies beef bulls for use on the dairy females. Now, it also identifies lines of beef animals for the beef seed stock breeder to breed for the dairy females. So our dairy population is increasing by around 2 to 3% per year. We currently have around 1.35 million dairy cows compared to around 850,000 beef cows. So the market for beef uh, bulls is increasing in the, uh, predominantly in the dairy. So we developed this index anyway, and it's a tough one. What it's trying to do is it's trying to marry the, the requirements of the dairy producer with that of the beef producer. The dairy producer is predominantly interested because this is where she or he makes their money is to get milk out of the cow and uh, with, with minimal impact. So calving difficulty, hugely important. Gestation length, really important, especially, especially in Ireland when you want them to calve early. And calf mortality is important. To this day, and I'm around a while, I've never seen anybody sell a dead calf. So you want to have a good <laughs> calf as well. So around 54% of the emphasis in this dairy beef index is, let's call it for the, for the dairy producer. It's calving performance. The remaining 46% then is for the beef producer. That's your, your feed efficiencies, your carcass weight, confirmation, docility, etc. So that's, that's where we would still be advocating farmers to use is this dairy beef index. Now, it's like any breeding index, like the, you know, the, the PLI or whatever, or the NMI in, in the US. If a breeding index was perfect, you'd only have five bulls. You'd only be marketing five bulls within the whole of the US. No, it's not, it's not because there's, there's variations between the systems. So yes, you could have high-ranking bulls on the dairy beef index, but if you have a small, tight heifer, 
you should really put a lot more emphasis on calving difficulty. Sure. If you have a good, big, mature fifth lactation cow, she can take a bigger bull. So you don't have to put as much emphasis on the calving difficulty and get a bit of size and a bit of shape into your individual bull. That's really the key. Now, what really excites me about this dairy beef index, and we, we've seen in dairy in particular, and I know that the breeds, beef breed societies in, in the US, like the Angus in particular, are making massive genetic gains, but still nothing, nothing like the Holstein. Right. The evaluations, the traits of interest in the U.S. Holstein and the Irish Holstein in whatever Holstein, they're sex linked. So, again, I've never seen anybody milk a bull. So yep. you, you have to <laughs> wait for, for the female. Then it takes ages for the female to lactate. So the calf has to be born and it has to become a cow and it has to have a few lactations to express its fertility. And then a lot of our traits tend to be just what we call lowly heritable. So it's, high, it's more difficult to get a high accuracy selection. Right. And yet we've made massive gains of it. But now look at the look at the dairy beef index, the traits I talked about. Calving difficulty. You, you got a measure of it the day the calf is born, around 20% heritable, and it's measured in males and it's measured in females. So it's not sex linked. Right. Right. And carcass around 40% of the emphasis. Measured in males, measured in females. It only takes around 15 months after the calf was born to actually measure these. So highly heritable. You don't need a huge amount of data. So the potential is massive for dairy beef to produce these beef bulls that are suited to dairy cows. And, I, and I'll finish off with this one, is that you can come back to me and rightly so to say, okay, look, this, this can't work. Because what you're trying to do here is select on two traits that are working off each other. So we know that an animal with a big carcass, that's gonna be a big animal and that's gonna be hard to calve. That's facts. There's a, a, a negative relationship between calving difficulty and beef merit. So what are you trying to do to select for the both of them in the favorable directions? Waste of time. No, that's completely wrong because I could put the same argument to you for milk production and fertility in the Holstein. They're also, and, and to their own ex the same extent, they are also negatively correlated with each other. Yet, with a good breeding program, you can actually uh, push the two in the right direction. So that's exactly what we're trying to do with the dairy beef index. And, and the real cool thing about dairy beef indexes and breeding programs is you don't have to worry about inbreeding. Holsteins, you're worried, oh, can I use this bull? Oh, I can't use that bull because it's related to my female. No, it's not that, like that in beef because you're using an Angus bull on a dairy female, on a Holstein. So there's no relationships. So all of the worry with inbreeding is with the seed stock producer and the, the dairy producer doesn't have to worry about it. So it's a recipe for success, all those components. I like that. One, one last question uh, before we call it quits here. There has been some interest here in the U.S. in transferring embryos, you know, purebred beef embryos into dairy cattle and trying to get, like you said, even additional markup on, on the value of the calf on the backside. What do you see as the, the potential risks and rewards of that kind of system? Yeah, so the re rewards are, are obvious, I think. You get a, an improved or better calf. So um, assuming no market failure now, right? Assuming no market yep. failure, then um, you should, the dairy farmer should re be rewarded. I think it will have to go in tandem with genotyping. Because these calves, I'm not sure how you, what age you sell them at, but like we'd be selling a lot of these calves at 10 days of age. Right. It'd be tough enough to recognize the difference now between a, a purebred Angus and a half-bred Angus. So you'd, you'd need a bit of genotyping to, 
to, to get that breed composition and put it up there. And when you're at it then, right, when you have the genomic evaluation for a breed composition, you may as well get these, what we in dairy call the PTAs and what the, the beef guys call the EPDs. So an Angus is not an Angus, it's not an Angus. There right. are good Anguses and there are bad Anguses, right? So you may as well get a genomic evaluation for this animal. Okay, so that's the real, I think, the benefit uh, that has to be there. But the, but the, the, the dairy farmer must be rewarded for such. There must be some element of market continuation. The risks, obviously, are, are kind of difficult. Now, on average, the, the beef bulls are going to be more difficult than the Holsteins. However, there is phenomenal variability within the breeds. Yeah. And you can certainly get bulls from any breed that are more easier calving than the Holsteins. And then the last one would be the impact on the cow herself. My data was limited to only looking at half-bred beef, so a beef bull on a dairy cow. And, you know, there's a lot of these traits are kind of cliff traits that when you go over the cliff, it just it just falls to pot. Yes. So we don't know that if you're, is it linear? So going from a, a light Angus to a heavy Angus, is that going to continue when to if you go to a really heavy Angus, which is your purebred Angus, and it mightn't hold. Once, once you, once you, you go to that extra little bit, it might the cow might just crack. And and I think really the calving difficulty is, is going to be a real driver there now. But having said that, as I said earlier, the potential is there if the demand is there for the dairy producer. The the traits are highly heritable. They're measured in all sexes. Measured the day the calf was born, same at gestation length. There's huge potential to actually drive this on. Fantastic. It's an interesting world we're living in, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, exciting. Absolutely exciting. And, you know, I, I, I think a lot of the future is going to be in dairy beef. Like we see in the US now, okay, it depends on the state. Around 25% of the beef in the different states actually comes from dairy. And I, I, I see that increasing. Yep, I think you're right. Donna, f- fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Really been a pleasure to have you here on the coffee break with the MSU Extension Dairy Team. I hope you'll join us again sometime. Will do, Barry. Thanks for that. Thank you, Dr. Bradford and Dr. Barry for exploring this topic that I'm sure it's in many producers' radar. As research and information is available, they can look into MSU Extension to stay updated. Both our dairy team and the beef team will be great sources of information in this topic. Join us next week when Senior Extension Dairy Educator Phil Durst meets with a dairy producer from Falmouth, Michigan. They will discuss how that producer approaches the transition program in his farm. I hope you'll join us then.